Hello and welcome to the Thriving Three Counties podcast with me, Dan Barker. Conversations with inspiring business people throughout the three counties of Herefordshire, Worcestershire and Gloucestershire. And now it's time for today's episode. I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, hello and welcome to this episode of the Thriving Three Counties podcast. I'm Dan Barker and I'm here in the studio with today's guest. He's a serial tech entrepreneur based in Malvern. He's written a business book, has a degree from Cambridge, a PhD from Oxford and built and sold a tech startup out in Singapore. These days he co-owns and manages the Witch Innovation Centre. He's the founder of the annual Malvern Festival of Innovation and is co-founding CTO of Blockmark Technologies, a blockchain technology company. In April 2018, he was also appointed a Royal Society Entrepreneur in Residence at the University of Birmingham. And despite having such an incredible amount going on, he's always appeared to me to be one of the most relaxed and chilled out people I know. <laughs> so it's always a pleasure to see him. He is Adrian Burden. How are you doing, Adrian? Hi, good to see you, Dan. Nice to see you. Thanks yeah. for having me. No, not at all. Thank you very much for, for coming over. We've known each other for a few years. Yeah, now, I, I think, think so. Through the originally, what, the Malvern Hills Business Forum? Yeah, small that's business right. Forum. Yeah. yeah, so um, yeah, it's good to, to finally sit down and have a proper chat because those things can be a bit fleeting, can't they? Yes, yeah, they can. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but, yeah. But, but good all the same. Um, so, right, there's lots to, to talk about here because I didn't know a lot of your your background i kind of knew a bit about the book and yeah everything like that and that you run some block blockchain technology company which i interested to hear about because i have no real idea about how that works uh-huh. okay <laughs> not that i want you to explain all the we blockchain yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah are you, are you from this part of the world originally or no actually um i moved around a bit actually when i was young my father mm-hmm. was in the RAF, so um, oh, okay actually grew up mainly near Swindon in Wooden Bassett, or Royal Wooden Bassett as it is now. Okay. Uh, but spent a bit of time in Gibraltar when I was young. Right, okay. Um, and then, um, yeah, moved to Malvern really because we like the place. Mm-hmm. And my wife's family is from there as well. So. Uh, okay, so a bit of a connection yeah. that way. Okay. So <clears throat> you were pretty much at one school when you were growing up, apart from that? Yeah, so once, um, once we travelled a bit with the RAF, uh, we went back to Wooden Bassett, and that's where I was in school. So I was at comprehensive school in Wooden Bassett for most of my childhood. Okay, okay. And were you always attracted to the kind of tech and science type of Yeah, I was. Um, so I always wanted to be a scientist. And mm-hmm. funnily enough, I always wanted to own my own company as well. Oh, okay. Which was, I think when I was young, I didn't really know what that meant. Yeah. I just thought it would be interesting and cool probably because i thought then i could be in charge but um <laughs> so i've always had that mix of i wanted to be a scientist and i wanted to own a business okay um, but back then there wasn't really the same emphasis on businesses there is now so yeah there were i think some of the role models i may have had were, were people like sir clive sinclair who was obviously oh, yeah. in tech and he had his own business so i did follow the story because i ended up getting a zx spectrum you know oh, yeah. and kind of follow in the press the difficulties he was having getting that delivered and mm-hmm. i knew that firsthand because i think i had to wait 14 weeks or something which was an age <laughs> was that the one with the tape player for the yeah it was the it was the so the zx spectrum was the color one um, uh-huh. after his zx81 uh but it had the tape player and yeah. it was always promised to come with this micro drive they they showed this micro drive right at the start. Right. Again, I had my eye on that, and I think I had a lot of technical <laughs> trouble getting that to work. So that tape drive, which was um, eventually came out, um, I you know, I never got one of those. Right. Okay. So yeah, I used to have to play the cassettes. Okay. Into the, into the computer. <laughs> yeah. So so that that sort of desire to run your own business, then where did that come from? Do you know? Or? I don't know really. Um, it, so my dad was in the RAF and I know that he also had designs on maybe running his own business okay. um, and coming out of the RAF. And mm-hmm. he, uh, he used to kind of sketch up things that he would do, um, like, and they were odd things like cleaning um, windows and guttering. And he would kind of sketch up a new window cleaning, guttering piece of kit that okay. would help him do this. 
Right, okay. And I don't know how serious he was with all of this, but um, so I kind of, from that, I think, thought a little bit about, well, maybe you should own your own company and run a company. Maybe there's more freedom in that. Okay. But, and I was quite academic at school, so I, and I really liked sciences. So I, it was never really the plan just to kind of leave school and start a business. I always thought I would, and always wanted to go on to university. Right, and, okay. You know, get a PhD and work in a lab, um, okay. which is what I did. And then getting into business side of things happened a bit later when I think it was kind of a bit more trendy to do so in that there was, um, there were startups that were in the tech space that, um, that I kind of was aware of and that kind of technical entrepreneurship of spinning something out of a university and making that work, um, looked appealing. Okay. So that's kind of where I ended up. Um, thinking and, and I had a, an opportunity. So I was working in academia in a postdoc position. So okay. after my PhD, doing research on plasma deposited thin films for, for kind of real world applications. So electronic applications. And then I had an opportunity to go and work in a startup. So they right. just raised some finance. They needed some technical people to run some of the research program to make it work. <clears throat> Um, and so I applied for the job in that, and that was around about the kind of tech boom bust, um, that happened. So, you know, when last minute.com and, and the internet companies were getting ridiculous valuations, it was around about that time. So, okay. uh, so the company I was, uh, which I went on to work with raised venture capital finance. Um, you know, we were looking at lots of other companies around us doing the same. So there was that kind of buzz. So it was a nice time to get involved with that. Yeah, I can imagine it was quite, uh, yeah. quite exciting. <laughs> it was good. Yeah. Was good. And uh, so you had a spell in uh, Cambridge as well before all of that? Yes. So I did my first degree in Cambridge, so in yeah. natural sciences. Okay. And so in Cambridge, it's a mixture. You don't just do the one science, you do several. Um, so I did maths, physics, and chemistry, and okay. this outlier crystalline materials. Right, which okay. actually became what I focused on. So each year in Cambridge, you narrow it down. And in the final year, I did material science, uh, okay. which was kind of where the failed physicists ended up. <laughs> so physics in Cambridge was just really, really, I found really tough, really yeah. hard to understand, very mathematical. Just couldn't get my head around it. But materials was a lot more applied, seemed to relate much more to the real world. Um, so luckily I had the opportunity to do materials and that's, okay. that's what my degree kind of ended up focusing on. Okay. Yeah. I always found that with, uh, with maths and stuff, I had to sort of relate it to something that was actually happening, like the theoretical stuff. I yeah. just couldn't yeah. like vectors in space or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, what, well, exactly. what are they doing there? Why are exactly. they there? <laughs> no, exactly. And you know, some of the concepts that we were introduced to were just, just too difficult to get your head around. I thought, <laughs> yeah. so, um, so yeah, I, I ended up focusing on, on the material science, but kind of that applied science was what really made me tick. You know, I kind of, un, I related to it. I could see how it worked in the real world. Um, mm -hmm. And whilst I was at university, I was sponsored um, okay. by a company back in Swindon called Raychem. So they don't exist. They're now Tyco, Tyco Electronics, but Raychem was a, a Silicon Valley company actually. Right. Um, and had a big R and D headquarters in Swindon mm -hmm. and they would sponsor students. And that was a really big break really, because I obviously had done a levels, but I had no idea what it was like to, to apply that in industry and what right. that meant. Yeah. So every summer I would work in Raychem. I, you know, I was paid money and it was really, <laughs> really good. Um, and it was a quite an interesting insight because it was effectively an American company. Mm -hmm. So the culture was very American. Right. Okay. And, um, and the stuff that was being researched and developed was really kind of managed or, or at least dictated from America. It was, it was the, you know, the, the American business plan. So, so it was a really great insight into how to, to do research and development in an industrial environment. Right. And, okay. uh, and, and Raychem was a materials company. So mm -hmm. it was polymers, plastics, electronic stuff, uh, a lot of it for military applications. Right. And that related really well to the degree then. So when I was doing material science, I could see how it 
fitted commercially and mm. why you would want to do this stuff. Yeah, I um, can imagine that. Was a that. Big insight. Yeah, I can imagine <laughs> that being a big help because uh, yeah, I, I think again I found the same because I did mechanical engineering at yeah. uni and. It was, although it was kind of practical, it wasn't like hands-on practical really. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it's difficult to know how that stuff relates to real world industry, isn't it? Yeah, and I think universities often spend too much time on the theoretical side of it. And it's, mm -hmm. and it's really important to relate that learning to the real world because that's where the careers are going to be. Unless you go on and do research in a university, which only a small percentage will do, mm. you know, you're going to go and get a job in industry. Um, and that's, you know, that's really important. The economy anyway, you know, that knowledge-based economy, you need yeah. people that can work in industry, um, you know, make money for the business, be innovative. Yeah. So I think there needs to be more emphasis on that. Would, would you advise someone like your younger self to go down the same route of university and everything now looking back on it? Yeah, I would. Um, yeah. You know, it was really enjoyable and yeah. we learned a lot you know, in, in the university courses. I, I think what is interesting now is the degree apprenticeships where you are effectively doing a degree, but you're working in a company. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of advantages on that if you're in a good company that can help develop that side. Yeah. Um, not least you don't have as high a fees. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Which of course, in our day, we didn't have, you know, the student fees in the same way as we do now. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So financially, that I would say is, is a disadvantage just going off and doing a degree. Mm -hmm. um, but um, yeah, for the right person, I think there's a lot of people now that go to university because they think that it's the norm mm. and it may not suit, it certainly shouldn't and doesn't suit everybody. So. Mm. Yeah. And I think, um, I mean, I, in a way I was lucky because I was in that in-between bit where we had debt, but it wasn't like the kind of amounts that we're talking these days. And yeah, but even, I always think like at that age, like 18, I had no idea what it meant or felt like to be in that much debt. You just think oh, I'll sort it out later. And yeah. I can imagine 18 year olds these days must feel the same way probably to think, well, 60 grand of debt, whatever. Yeah. You know, the, but it feels pretty age, horrible. <laughs> you've got no real way of relating as to what that means really, do you? Yeah. You know, the yeah, price of a car, yeah. but you know, what are you likely to earn in the future? How quickly are you going to be paying it back? So. Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? Yeah, and you enjoy Cambridge. I grew up just outside Cambridge. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. No, Cambridge was really good actually, and yeah. um, you know, doing the undergraduate degree at Cambridge was great because it is kind of very much a university city. When the undergraduates are there, yeah, you know, you know it really fills the city up with students. Mm. So there's yeah, really nice buzz there, and I think it's quite quiet out of term time in Cambridge, relatively. Yeah. Whereas I did my PhD at Oxford, and Oxford is a busier city. Yeah. Um, and so doing the PhD, you're there all the time. You're not just there during the undergraduate term. So that was the right way around, actually, because mm. it meant as a, post, as a PhD student, it was busy all the time. It was a fun city to be in. Yeah, nice. Um, nice. So, yeah, it was good. Cool. So <laughs> after the PhD then? Um... Yeah. So, that, well, I was still at that point still very keen on science and research so that's mm. when i um, became the postdoc so i was mm. working in a university research lab team i was actually at the university of surrey which is in guildford okay so i i did a project there um and you know the thing in academia is it's a lot about writing papers academic papers about your research so right. disseminating the results um which is really important. But I, as, I, as I was doing that, I was thinking, actually, I'd like, to, I'd like to do a bit more. I'd like to make it commercial and have, a, have something that's not just research in a lab that you write about, but something that actually does something right. you know, useful <laughs> yeah. somehow. Um, yeah. And, you know, engineering that, so getting yourself in the right place to be doing that is hard. You can't just sort of say, well, I'm going to spin this out of a university or I'm going to make sure I'm in the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. um, so because this opportunity came along to work in a startup, um, even though it's not my startup, I thought, well, this is, this will be great. Cause yeah, it's great a lot experience. Of insight. <laughs> and it did. Um, you know, I was employee number four or five. So basically the founding directors in that first wave of taking on some people to work with them, 
they just sort of got the funding. Um, I was in that first wave. And, nice. um, so I helped set up the lab, helped kind of set up what that company was like in the early stage. Right. Uh, in okay. the sense that, you know, the directors would ask me and, and my few colleagues, okay, we've got to do this. How do we do that? You know, let's get cracking. Um, and so it was yeah. really, really interesting. Yeah, but yeah. A few months of, of, of a really big change from working in a research university environment to suddenly there being quite a lot of money, but it had to be spent quickly, well. Yeah. And the people that had invested the money were expecting it to be returned, of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so that was a very different mindset. Time yeah. in that sense was really critical. Uh -huh. Whereas in the research environment, time was not the critical point, you know, it was not the critical factor. Okay. So yeah. everything had to be as quick as possible done in parallel um, to make an impact in the business, in the company. Yeah. So sort of balancing <laughs> getting it right with the commercial Yeah. Side. And having investors breathing down your neck. So that was another really interesting insight. Of course, I was shielded a little bit because I was effectively an employee. I wasn't, you know, a director and I wasn't a founder, mm. but I would work very closely with the CTO. Um, the technical director and you know i could see the pressure he was under he needed the results he needed the the research results in effect to be promising and making progress so that the product could come out of this yeah uh so there was that pressure there was obviously the pressure of money running out yeah. however much you earn or, or raise there's always a burn rate and then yeah. eventually it's gonna <laughs> run out um a lot of investors don't give you all the money at once so Right. There were milestones to release the next tranche. Okay, yeah. So there's a lot of pressure. And, and you know, that pressure is getting results, watching the cash, but also growing the business. So they mm -hmm. had to get more people, deal with the facilities, get the equipment in, mm. write the patents. Find customers. Find, <laughs> yeah, exactly, find customers. And what was really interesting was the, um, the technology was quite early stage. So right. it, it wasn't at the product stage. It was all prototyping. Right. Um, and I think nowadays that would be a bit more frowned upon by investors. You know, they've had their fingers burnt too often on this kind of very early stage stuff. But back then, you know, there was money to be invested in this. Okay. Um, yeah. Even though it was still quite early as a product or a, even a demonstrator. Okay. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I spent that time really looking at how it was working and, mm. and what was involved. And, you know, I would make notes about the kind of the procedures and the processes that were going on and um, kind of templates about, okay, well, when I start my own business, I mean, mm -hmm. I have that in my head when I, you know, when I do my own business in this kind of tech space, I've got to think about investors. I've got to think about, you know, okay. product development. So you were really studying at that time yeah, and watching yeah, what yeah. was going on and learning. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, nice. Okay. So then did you go straight from there to starting your own business? No, I didn't quite. So then what happened is had an opportunity to work in Singapore. Okay. Um, so at that point, we had a very young family mm -hmm. and um, I'd always wanted to work overseas and I thought probably would work in the US, actually, because right. that's where a lot of science and engineers, scientists and engineers go to work. And of course, there's a lot of technology development and so forth there. But I'd done some traveling and um liked southeast asia and um, i interviewed for a job in in singapore at a research institute so a government-funded research institute that kind of sits between a university and industry so it's quite an applied university a bit like a max planck institute right. in, in germany um so i applied for a job there because they were looking for someone that had some experience of taking research work into industry Okay. Um, yeah. And that kind of really fitted with what I'd done. Yeah. And and I so I went over there and said, yeah, I'm I'm really interested in doing that and potentially spinning a company off from the institute. So they they hired me to to work on some technical projects there, and I went across to work on plastic electronics actually. So I a lot of my work up until then had been in the display industry, flat panel displays. Okay. And one of the emerging technologies was, was plastic electronics and being able to make polymer-based displays, okay. which you can now get. So you sometimes hear the term OLED, organic light-emitting diodes and things. 
Um, but at that point, it was still very much research and some early stage prototypes and so on. And there was quite a big research program in Singapore in this institute on that. So I went right. across primarily to look at what they'd done mm -hmm. and then try and create a company out of that IP. Okay. And that was the plan. What actually happened was I quite quickly um, worked with another colleague there who was also interested in this idea of spinning off and mm -hmm. commercializing some technology. And he was working in another area um, to do with the hard disk drives, right. which, was a, which was also a big research area for Singapore. Mm -hmm. So he and I um, looked at what, what was being made in his lab. And one of the really big problems with that um, research that he was doing was to make good quality hard disk drives, you have to have a really uniform material as you can imagine, to, to store the information reliably. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea back then was to condense the information you know, into ever smaller hard disk drives and, and get the information density higher and higher. So you needed that control on an ever finer scale. Mm -hmm. And it was really difficult. And basically in the lab, what was happening is the materials were coming out really quite random and the structures were unreliable and right, not okay. at all appropriate for hard disk drives. But we realized that they were unique and different structures every time that were stable so if you read them a bit like a hard disk drive you've got like a fingerprint and um, off the back of that we realized that we were effectively making very small scale materials based fingerprints that were unique and that we weren't controlling so we got what we got each time okay so okay. we then decided that this was actually a really good anti-counterfeiting technology right. because you could okay. make individual labels or tags containing these little fingerprints mm -hmm. and associate them on a database with a product a physical item right okay and effectively give a fingerprint to a product okay. so that was the concept and uh, we got some funding internally to run this as a prototyping project for mm -hmm. two years mm -hmm. and where we demonstrated making the material working on the, the sensor technology to read it, storing it in a database, going out into the world and reading these tags remotely and checking back to the database. Right. Um, and off the back of that, we filed some patents and then we um, licensed those to a new company that we created. And so we spun off a company from the Institute okay. to commercialize that technology. Right, okay. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah, it, it was a successful business but it was that was the point where you know now i was a co-founder of a startup that i had you know been fully involved in the ip um and it was a classic case of spinning off from a, a university type of environment. right so the university keeps the ip effectively and you <laughs> yeah. license it right yeah, exactly okay. so what tends to happen of course because it's been funded by the university or the research institute or the government um the, you know yeah. feeds into the grants um, what the model is generally that the university or the research institute uh, keeps the IP, keeps mm -hmm. the patents, and then you license these to the, the spin-off. Right. And then, you know, the spin-off will pay royalties or may give up some equity or both um, to, to the university partner. Okay. And then right. um, the idea is that the company grows. And there's pros and cons with that model. You know, some universities are a bit greedy or haven't got much experience and try and take too much for that intellectual property that still mm -hmm. hasn't been proven in the marketplace. Right. Um, and that can stifle the company okay. from growing. Yeah. Um, and equally, you know, they get the balance wrong. So sometimes equity is a good thing to take because the spin-off company has no money to pay royalties. Um, but equally, royalties can be, you know, a, a good money maker for everybody in the future because mm -hmm. it's kind of feeding into the into the university when the business is a success okay and does the the business itself then because uh, it doesn't own the ip is it does that sort of affect its value and it can yeah so it's all down to the agreement really so we spent quite a bit of time making sure that we had a, a good um well-written license agreement mm -hmm. uh usually in that situation you want an exclusive license agreement so that yeah, basically okay. means you know, your spin-off company has the exclusive rights to commercialize it. And right, yeah. sometimes you can dice that up a bit, um, you know, into particular applications and so on. But certainly 
you want as much value in the business as possible. If you're going to raise money, you know, mm. investors are not going to put money in if they think that the intellectual property can be pulled away yeah. <laughs> very quickly. So in the end, we negotiated, you know, a fair exclusive license. Um, it, but what was interesting, and it, you know, this is again the case, is that as an employee at that point of the, effectively the institute or the university, you're kind of, you're in that, odd position of negotiating with your own organization with yourself, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so you have to kind of you know all the parties involved have to realize that and and be wary of well, conflicts of interest but also yeah. what the different drivers are for people um so it took some time i mean we yeah, were the but... <laughs> first spin-off from that institute oh, right. um, okay. in singapore so the, singapore has several research institutes in the both the bio and the sort of physical sciences. Mm -hmm. But we were the first one to spin off from the Institute of Materials, Research and Engineering. And because of that, you know, it, we were kind of having to navigate uncharted waters and <laughs> negotiate with um, actually the centralized body that managed the IP for the Institute. So it was slightly detached from the Institute itself. Yeah. Um, but we got there and we spun off. And, and actually, we, we kind of got a customer quite early on because of the publicity of having spun off. We were able uh, okay, to, cool. to capitalize on that. Yeah. Um, and then we raised Angel and Venture Capital Finance. Um, we delivered the first version of the product. We, um, we actually won a, quite a big business plan competition that meant we could set up in Italy, of all places. Right. So we set up a subsidiary in Italy. Um, and then... We were approached by a pharmaceutical packaging company that wanted to use the technology. And originally, the discussion was a collaboration. You know, let's put your technology onto our packaging. But it quickly turned into an acquisition discussion. And uh -huh. so in the end, that company bought our company. Okay. Um, and right. that was, you know, what's often referred to as an exit. Or exit a trade sale. Yeah. Okay. What's the time frame between spinning off and the Yeah, because it's quite short. Um, it's about two years. Okay, well. Um, roughly, yeah. So, <clears throat> again, that's, I think, quite unusual. But what came out of that was quite a, uh, a kind of a good case study, really, because it was, you know, the university research project, then it was generating IP, then it was negotiating that exclusive license agreement and spinning off, mm -hmm. then it was raising the venture capital finance, expanding overseas, <laughs> negotiating a trade sale, <laughs> exiting all in the space of so, about four years so yeah like everything in yeah <laughs> so it was a fast-paced thing that's why i have no hair okay so uh, and i guess presumably at the same time as that you were moving from research scientist to business owner and yeah working all that stuff out as well yeah absolutely so um so i became the founding ceo and my colleague, the founding CTO. So mm -hmm. we were the two directors of the new business. And yeah, I, I kind of used all the experience that I'd had in that earlier startup where I'd been employed to build the systems around what was needed, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of processes and how the business was going to operate. And, you know, things like the business plan and, and um, the kind of HR, um, staff management, all mm -hmm. of that stuff we kind of then implemented. Yeah. Okay. Um, and yeah, it worked well. I mean, it worked particularly well, I think, because my colleague and I, um, we were both of a very similar view that this was not a job for life. We really mm. did want to spin off, grow the business and sell it. Right. Okay. So we were both aligned on that. We yeah. were aligned on, you know, kind of how long to do this for. And also, I think also what we wanted to get out of it, you know, mm. in terms of, the monetary reward mm -hmm. so it wasn't that one wanted lows and one didn't mind a little sort of mm -hmm. thing we were all kind of on the same page that's good um <laughs> yeah it is it helps a lot and actually having a co-founder helps yeah uh, immensely and that i would really recommend if you're going to start a business because you you know there's days when you feel you know down uh, despondent exhausted mm -hmm. and um the chances are your co-founder is not actually so yeah you, know, you you've got each other to to kind of energize off yeah 
And also the other thing we found was really helpful was a sense of humor during it all. I mean, <laughs> we were just, there were things we were just aghast at sometimes really? um, in, you know, some of the things that people said to us, you know, the investor discussions, some of Can the- Can you give us any uh, specific examples? Or... Yeah. I mean, we had, so, you know, when you're raising finance with a, with an investor that's going to put in a sizable chunk, you know, they do due diligence. So they look at detail uh -huh. into your business, which is fine. But we had, you know, several investors at different points looking into what we were doing. Um, we had one investor that spent an awful lot of time with us and then right at the last minute pulled out. Right. And, and you know, that, that's really hard to deal with in the sense that you've, you've spent a lot of time with them mm. um, and you kind of get into the point where you think, you know, the deal's going to go through, but you're just negotiating the finer points. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really hard when that happens. But we had one case, a bit like that, where, you know, I remember the phone call where the, the person working with the investor rang up and started quizzing me about the individual cells on the Excel spreadsheet as to what the number <laughs> was and how did we get to it, right down to that level of right, well. nitty gritty. And, you know, with a startup, all of that is projection anyway. Mm. You know, and you've really got to look at the bigger picture of the projection, I think, and say, you know, is this sensible? You know, are these revenue um, projections at all realistic? Are these costs realistic? Whereas to drill down into, you know, one cell, which may have about 20, in that case, Singapore dollars associated with it, was just ludicrous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny. I interviewed a guy called Alistair Crystal, who uh, would have come out probably last week or the week before. And uh, he, he used to work for a big, a very big company and he, he yeah. said the the owner of that the billionaire owner would sort of not not worry about the the details like they'd come in with all the financial projections and he'd say just tell me what the plan is and yeah on the basis that if the plan's right the finances will look yeah. after themselves kind of <laughs> yeah i think so i mean there's too much um possibility or of, of just focusing in too in too much detail um yeah you've got to take a step back i think yeah. And, you know, when you've got investors coming on board, yeah, you know, okay, it's a test to see whether you've really worked out the numbers maybe. But given the rest of the conversation we'd had with that particular investor, you know, this was, this was unnecessary, I think. Um, yeah. And also, yeah, in the end, they pulled out as well. Right. Um, I mean, one of the, I think what happened in that case was they came back, they knew we were getting desperate, which is the other problem when you're raising finances, you mm. get to a point where you've been running on fumes, financial fumes for a while, mm. particularly if, if they get wind of one of the um, other investors that might come on board pulling out. So they can come back and turn the screws and say, actually, we think you're only worth half what you're saying. So our offer is now half the valuation that we were discussing before, right. which effectively means they get you know, twice as much equity for their money. Yeah. Um, you see it now on Dragon's Den, how this sort of thing works. Yeah. And, you know, it was then you have to be, again, really strong um, and, um, you know, brutal with, with your own plans and, and actually make a decision as to whether to go ahead with this much reduced offer or walk away and mm. carry on. <laughs> so in that particular case, yeah, we did. We walked away, I think, more out of pride and, and you know, well, we'll show them type right. attitude you know how dare they come back with such a ridiculously low offer and and yeah it works out i mean again it, it all comes down i think to that teamwork we both had that same feeling that that was an unacceptable offer yeah and yeah we would go and find another one um and uh, you know as luck would have it we did find another investor who was much better suited a bit more hands-off um mm -hmm. and interestingly was i think as keen to make an investment as we were to get an investment. So right, that's always okay. a nice balance as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, helps with the negotiation. <laughs> so, uh, oh, of course. Cool. So, yeah, a lot to navigate and think about. And yeah. I mean, at that time, you said you had a, a young family out there mm. in Singapore. Were you kind of having to make a few sacrifices in terms of, you know, yeah, living so, and. Um, I mean, so Singapore is an expensive city to live in. Yeah. Uh, so it's expensive in terms of rent, but also in terms of schooling and, and, and existing. Uh, so 
my wife was actually working at the research institute at that point as well so she was able to get a job there and so that obviously helped we had the two incomes mm-hmm. and um we were always very mindful of you know if things don't work out we're in you know we're not in our home country we've got to make sure we've got an escape route right, an escape okay. plan yeah. um you know back to the uk basically so we had to make sure that yes we had you know money for a a flight ticket home I was gonna say, and things yeah, like enough, that. Enough um, to get on a plane. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so from that point of view, I added an extra level of stress on the whole thing for sure, is, yeah. is the fact that you're doing a startup and you're doing it in a foreign country. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, we never expected to live in Singapore permanently. We'd always seen it as an experience for five years or whatever mm-hmm. and to, um, to sort of come home. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, by then our young family was getting older. They were at school. Um, they were at, they were at a, an English school in Singapore. So that obviously had fees to be paid. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, for sure we watched it. And that was why there was some sense of urgency to get some funding into the business so that we could pay ourselves a little bit as well as founders. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, that's always another contentious issue with, I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> you know, how much do you pay the, the founders? And I think the argument has to be there's no point the founders not getting any money if they're going to need the money because, you know, you need your founders to be focusing on growing the business. Yeah. Not where thinking about, you know, where they're going to get their next meal from or how are they going to pay the rent at home. So, yeah. you know, a good investor will, will quite understand that and say, of course, you know, you're not going to pay yourself hugely out of whack but yeah you should pay yourself a sensible salary and of course that motivates people to work anyway um so yeah so getting that right was important and yes we had again that would make us make us laugh you know some of the ridiculous expectations that some (laughs) of the investors had on us as to not being paid and things like that right okay yeah 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 but yeah i can imagine it's a fine balance because i suppose if you kind of pay people too much it's that they could get just get comfortable and not try as hard in a way because it's you know i've had that way you kind of right i need to phone up and try and get some business here because uh yeah it's absolutely a balancing act um (laughs) and of course you know if you pay yourselves too much you're going to run out of money more quickly anyway and you have to go and raise more money that's also another distraction yeah so for sure there's a lot of things to get you end up having to almost sort of show your kind of home finances and what you need to justify what you, you yeah. need to survive. Almost. I mean, we did have those kind of discussions, you know, yeah. what, what our kind of rough outgoings were and to justify yeah. it. And also, you know, justifying what we had been paid before in terms of, you know, we were senior research scientists mm-hmm. in a research institute with an expat package. So, you know, we had been pretty comfortable mm. in the research institute. Uh, and, and that was the other thing was, yeah, you, you know, you have that safety net and then suddenly you're running your own business. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and I think what, what's interesting about that is everybody looking on from outside is, you know, wow, you, 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 you're rich, you're running your own business. You know, there, <laughs> yeah. there's that tendency to think that as soon as you start doing it, you've made it. Yeah, you're the director um, of a company. Yeah. <laughs> and it's the total opposite, of course. You, know, <laughs> yeah. you don't... I, so one of the things we had to do really quickly after starting the, the business as, as a spin-off, you know, I had to head off to Taiwan and, and deliver some, effectively some consulting course um, to bring in some money into the business. So, you know, that was to get some money in to pay one of the, uh, the engineers that had come with us from the research institute, you know, one of the more junior members of staff, right. they, you know, they absolutely needed to be paid. Yeah. You know, they wouldn't have savings uh, and things yeah. maybe like, like we did. So yeah. Um, within weeks of setting up, I was off doing some consultancy work, which was obviously nothing to do with the actual business, but mm. it was technical and was bringing in some cash. It's doing what it takes to make it yeah. work. <laughs> and then finding these investors that would come on board. Um, and I think one of the things I've learned with all of this is a lot of it is luck and serendipity. Mm-hmm. But I think 
it, it's not just luck that kind of falls in your lap. You've got mm. to go out and look for that luck. Mm. So, you know, I, when I look back at all of these things, you know, when we found the investor that came on board, when we found the company that actually ended up acquiring us, although that all that happened kind of at the right time, and thank goodness it happened when it did, and and so on. Um, in fact, what was happening was we were casting our net really quite wide and going mm. to lots of meetings, lots of networking mm. and trying to be in the position where some luck would happen. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So you, yeah, I think that's uh, really important for people that starting out in a business is you've got to be out there creating the opportunities yeah, and then yeah. you'll get the investors and the customers and, and so forth. Yeah. Cause luck almost sounds like you said, like it just falls on your lap, but that's not what's happening, is it? You're putting in the work and you're putting yourself in the position to yeah. be sort of receptive to, to, yeah. to those things come yeah. along. And there were several occasions where I would be going off to a meeting thinking, oh, you know, I, this is going to be a waste of time. I would rather be doing this or I need to get on and do something else. Um, but that was a critical meeting, it turned out. You know, yeah. if you look back the next day and think, well, crikey, if I hadn't gone to that meeting, uh, this would not be happening now. So, yeah, that happened on numerous occasions. Yeah, yeah, okay. Mm. So um, after the, the exit then, um, you came back to the UK at that stage? Um, yeah, indirectly. So we actually exited, but we'd already been planning um, that I would come and work in Italy where we had our subsidiary. Okay. Uh, and the plan there was um, to try and grow that, sort of subsidiary uh, and help the team on the ground there. We had a couple of people working for us there. Mm -hmm. um, and just to kind of try and build the business a bit more quickly with the European opportunity that we had. So the plan was that my colleague Peter would stay in Singapore. I would move to Italy and then eventually come back to the UK um, anyway, irrespective of the uh, of an exit or not, so that we would have a European and Singapore business. Okay. And the and then what actually happened is while that plan was evolving and, and I was kind of getting ready to to relocate, the discussions turned quite serious about the acquisition. Right. Okay. So then what we did is we we rushed well, not rushed but we accelerated that through, mm -hmm. um, got the acquisition done, and you know the, the acquirers agreed that I should go to Italy anyway. The plan right. should stay in. Play. So basically, we sold the business, but then, of course, as often happens, particularly in a tech business, you're expected to stay in um, and carry on working with the new owners so that they yeah. see how it all works and understand, particularly in this case, you know, the advanced technology. So they needed to understand from Peter and myself exactly how it worked, exactly what we thought the opportunities were, because it was still quite I, early stage. I've always wondered, like, with that. You know how how the motivation is when you've done that because you've you've kind of taken the money and been paid. Yeah, so then, I mean, uh, <laughs> th that is all in the negotiations. So quite often right. in an exit like that, um, you haven't taken all the money. Or, uh, okay. or, you know, some is held <laughs> okay. back, or there are strings attached to various things. There's lots of different ways that can be structured. Okay. Um, so in this particular case, yeah, we you know we'd sold the business, but we had a structure in place right. that meant that. Um, you know, we, we weren't in a position to just suddenly head off to Hawaii and sit <laughs> on the beach and retire. Um, and we were motivated to stay in the business. Okay, and, and right. understood, yeah. So, so that's what we did. And uh, yeah, I moved to Italy and helped um, the guys in the office there and, and spent, in the end, we were in Italy for about 15 months before but, then coming to the UK. But is it different though? Because when you get over there <laughs> and you're working for this company now yeah effectively for you know money for a almost like a salary i suppose that's for me like you know that's a different kind of motivation yes. isn't it to building your own business so. it is yeah so um yeah and you read about it all the time you know there's often cases uh you know where businesses have sold to other businesses and things don't work out um so it is hard you know part of the difficulty is you're basically usually subsumed by a much bigger company with, with a company that's already got, you know, its own ethos and its mm -hmm. own way of doing stuff. 
Now, in this particular case, we were acquired by an Indian headquartered company, so culturally very different. Um, it's just that they had a very big facility in Singapore as well, mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of how the Singapore connection came about. So, yeah, it was very hard. Um, and, and what you've got to watch in that situation is kind of how long you're tied in, mm -hmm. what, are, what are your escape clauses, if any, yeah. and, and getting in a different mindset just to kind of see it as part and parcel of the whole thing. You know, at some point, if you do go through an acquisition and a trade sale, you know, almost certainly you will have to work out some period of time. Mm -hmm. um, and that's because they want to see that the business they bought really is what they bought. Right. What they, okay. think, what they were buying and that, it, you know, the, the, oil, the wheels stay oiled and, and yeah. they don't lose lots of money quickly. Um, but you're right. So it was hard for, for sure. Uh, and I think, yeah, the, the two. So this was happening around about the financial crisis. So again, right, timing okay. was really, really uh, fortunate. We, it, so here in the UK, it was when there was the run on uh, Northern Rock, mm -hmm. that kind of thing happening. So in the business, we had raised some venture capital finance in the, in the business. So we were financially pretty strong at that point, mm -hmm. but we knew we were going to have to raise some more probably within the year to 18 months. That was the plan. Um, and actually, it was my colleague, Peter, who kind of had um, visibility of what was happening in the financial markets. Right. He had realized that there was something going on that we should oh, be really, really wary of right. um, before I picked up on it. And so when um, you know, the acquisition came about and, and we were negotiating it, you know, we felt actually the timing ought to be pretty good you know, right. because we could foresee problems in the future. He, right. he could see that there was going to be a crunch. So, yeah, so actually, in that sense, the timing was great. And of course, very soon after there was the financial crisis, and we would have really struggled as a business, I think, right. to carry on the way we had planned. Um, obviously, with the new owners being a bigger business, more established, they did have the, the sort of war chest to see. Had the it. funds to keep going. Yeah, yeah. right. Okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so as, a, as a now an employee working in the business, it was a case of really. Yeah, doing what you can, obviously, to help it. You're still motivated because it's still your kind of technology baby that's being yeah. developed <laughs> and being used. Um, I mean, the technology we developed was now being put onto blister packs. So the idea was to stop counterfeiting of medicines, which, of course, is a really, uh, you know, important thing. Right. Um, and actually quite a hard thing to do because medicines uh, generally high volume products. So mm -hmm. you've got to, you know, to kind of scale up to billions of blister packs and so forth would have been really hard for us to do in a smaller startup. Yeah. That hadn't been our focus. So that was, that was good. That was what kind of motivated us was mm -hmm. they were still putting in, you know, R and D money to take this to the next level. Right. We were involved in new customer prospects. Um, but yeah, culturally, very different company yeah. and, and quite different and, and kind of difficult to, to kind of um, work with because they have different ways of doing things. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. <laughs> okay. So um, once you were sort of done with that, you know, you've done your time then, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Well, by the end of it, it felt like that. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So eventually the contract did come to an end and I decided not to carry on working with them. I mean, I could have renewed a contract for sure, mm. um, I think. And then, and that was the point, you know, by this point we were back in, well, we were in back in the UK in Malvern mm. and um, my wife had started exploring the cybersecurity space okay. and consulting in that. So this is what, 2010, yeah. something like that? Yeah. Right. yeah, 2009, 2010. Well, that's when we came back um, mm. and it was um, about 2012. Yeah, the Olympic year when right. I finally finished the, the okay. contract. Um, and we had just seen, probably six months earlier, actually, uh, what is now the Witch Innovation Center mm -hmm. on the market as a commercial property. Right. And we thought that would be a really interesting space to buy and do up as a kind of a, a tech business incubator. Yeah. Um, 
again, because in Singapore and actually in Italy, where our company had been based was in tech incubator or a okay. business incubator. Um, I'd seen how they work and the value of having more than one business in the same space mm-hmm. and, and the kind of interactions you get. And we just thought, wow, it'd be really interesting to have one of those on our doorstep that yeah. we run. We could do our own new businesses in that and have lots of interesting people around us. Yeah. Um, so we, yeah, we ended up in the end buying the building uh, and converting it into hot desking serviced mm-hmm. offices and eventually a cafe visitor yeah. center as well okay okay so that's been going for a little while now then nine it is yeah i think nine um, years or so. coming up for 10 years soon right yeah okay cool and yeah. uh yeah it's a cool a cool space you got there yeah it's worked out well and it what's been interesting is how the the space does seem to work with the people in there you know it's it's got enough small offices it's got a meeting room it's a cafe really helps mm-hmm. um in for, for sort of informal meetings we can turn that space where the cafe is into a bigger meeting room mm-hmm. as well um which works works nicely okay so it's quite flexible yeah quite a flexible space and uh, yeah, it's worked. Worked uh, as a business. And obviously, you've got all that experience to help mentor people to some extent, I, I guess. Yeah, and that was the original plan was to to do a lot more of that. Um, and and certainly in the early days when we'd started, we would have investors come in and do clinics and workshops and people from marketing and so on. Mm-hmm. And more recently, mainly because you know both my wife Emma and I have been more and more involved in our own businesses. Yeah, we've actually had less time to mentor mm. or interact with the other businesses. But actually, what we found is there's a lot more of that out there anyway now. And okay, I think yeah. the businesses in our centre um, are getting on with it yeah. and don't necessarily need us to do much other than okay. facilitate their facility. Okay, so um, did you write the book quite soon after you, you got back, or was that a kind no, of no? That was um, that took a while. So again, I'd always said I would write a book. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> from when I was very young, I think. Yeah, um, excellent. Goodness knows, I don't think I knew what it was going to be about. Um, and actually, Peter and I would joke when we were in the business in Singapore about how we're going to have to write a book about this um, <laughs> because of, as I say, the various things we. We'd come across. Um, so again, I yeah, it's, I guess it was it was a few years after having finished. I thought actually I better just get on and do this. I'd already made a a start, you know. I jotted down a few ideas and chapters mm-hmm. and things. But then um, it gets to the point where if you're going to write a book, you've just got to sit down and do it. Actually. <laughs> um, and it's it's quite hard to kind of carve out time in your day where yeah. you just do that. Yeah. Um, and and you need to do that, I think, to, to kind of get into the flow. Mm-hmm. It's not something you can pick up, do half an hour of and stop. You've got to, I think, do a couple of hours at a time and, mm-hmm. and then it's actually easier. So I, I just made an effort to, to do that Yeah. And finally got it all down on paper. All right, okay. Um, was, yeah. that, was it kind of therapeutic in a way to do that? Uh, a little bit, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it, it was and... It's always a, a fine balance between what writing down, well, first of all, what you are allowed to write down, because obviously there's a lot of confidential stuff in business transactions anyway. So sure, yeah. be careful, um, you know, with that, be mindful of that. Um, also, I think I took the view that probably, you know, people would probably be more interested and get more value from the experiences that they could get on and use rather mm-hmm. than just the kind of personal backstory which yeah, is sure. not much of interest to anybody um so i did you know i made a conscious effort to try and write down stuff that people could act on and mm-hmm. benefit from yeah um, yeah okay yes excellent uh and obviously that's available at all the uh, all major good <laughs> all good bookshops <laughs> on yeah. and on your yeah. website if they head to adrianburden dot net yes Can find yeah, a link it's linked to, on there yeah to the yeah. book start to exit yeah. yeah cool um and then now you're running this blockchain technology yeah company. so that's that's been quite interesting that's back to real 
tech startup land again. Mm-hmm. Um, so colleague Tom Alcott, he's a, a lives locally. He and I a few years ago started talking about blockchain. Um, he had some experience working in the food supply chain. Right. He'd started a pepper business, pepper mongers, importing good quality pepper. He'd realized that there were problems around the provenance of um, the food stuff that was coming in. Mm-hmm. I, of course, had this background in anti-counterfeiting and mm-hmm. knew about all aspects of counterfeiting. And um, blockchain is really an, well, an emerging technology around a distributed database. So rather than you holding a database that you own in the cloud, maybe, or on your server, um, blockchain is a ledger that's distributed around the world. Lots of people own copies of it or have mm-hmm. copies of it. So it's, it's, a, it's a really good way of having tamper-proof records. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the, the classic application is Bitcoin, mm-hmm. cryptocurrency. It's a great way of having peer-to-peer money transactions where you can't double spend. Mm-hmm. So I can't send the money to two different people. Um, and then off the back of that, there are other applications. So if you kind of swap out the money token for other things, mm-hmm. um, you can transact in these other things. Okay. And, uh, and then a more advanced version of the blockchain is one that actually runs code in a distributed manner right. rather than just the ledger. Uh, and then you kind of have a, a way of running logic and smart contracts that are... Okay you know, out of anybody's individual control in theory. So you can kind of trust them if you understand that they've been written correctly. Uh, And the end result is that you can have these automated contracts where money can be exchanged for other things and you don't need a middleman as a result of that. So classic example is insurance. Um, You kind of cut out the broker because the contract uh, looks for whether the insured event happens and pays out if it does and retains the premium if it doesn't. no loss adjust or anything in there as long as it's programmed correctly. So this looked really exciting. Um, and a few years ago, uh, you know, there was a lot of talk about cryptocurrencies becoming mainstream, you know, more and more applications for this kind of automated ledger. So we thought, okay, well, let's start a business and explore what we could do. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, oddly enough, quite quickly realized that it, the kind of logging certificates or credentials um, which is kind of a bit like intellectual property, uh, using the blockchain could be a good way um, of controlling certificates. So, you know, if you say you've got a particular qualification, use the blockchain as the, the, the record that that okay. is the case and, yeah. and you can't tamper with it and so forth. Okay. So a few years on from the initial um, idea, we're now in a position where we've created a software as a service, a cloud-based platform that manages certificates mm-hmm. and uses blockchain at the moment in quite a light touch way. It provides a record where you want it. So the problem still, even now, is that blockchain is quite difficult to interact with. So, okay. you know, Joe Blogs out in the, in the real world is not going to know how to interface with the blockchain and, mm-hmm. and kind of benefit from it mm-hmm. or, or even, you know, make use of it. Whereas that, I think, is changing. So uh, in time, web browsers and mobile phones, et cetera, will all interface with blockchain in different ways, and that will kind of become a bit more mainstream. Mm-hmm. And our plan is that our product will evolve so that it becomes more and more integrated into that. Okay. And, and then out at the other end will pop a kind of a fully integrated blockchain app that is useful. Can I ask a like real basic question on yeah. this because I don't understand it fully? But the ledgers that are kept in all these different places, yeah. Why would people keep ledgers? Yeah, so it is a good question. Um, it, so actually, they are rewarded for keeping the ledgers to some extent. Okay. Um, so you you sometimes hear about blockchain mining, oh, and yeah. what that is is it's actually solving a mathematical puzzle to create the next block on the blockchain. Okay. And these miners will store a copy of the ledger, the blockchain, okay. yeah. um, and they will race to find the solution mathematically mm-hmm. for the next block based mm-hmm. on the information that's provided. And then the winner is rewarded in some cryptocurrency. Right. Okay. Um, and so they're motivated that way. But okay. it's, it's a really interesting game theory in terms of, you know, who are these miners and, and people mm-hmm. keeping copies of the blockchain? and what happens if actually 
eventually they all end up in the same control because um, mm-hmm. <laughs> then you don't have that independence. Yeah. So there's a lot of work going on, uh, you know, trying to understand the game theory of blockchain, but also kind of solve some of those issues. Um, how, many, how many people have a copy of the ledger for your blockchain? Uh, and do you well, know? So we, we've been using, diff- we've been experimenting with different blockchains. So you sometimes okay. have private blockchains, which are held with a n- small number of stakeholders. Um, Bitcoin blockchain is with thousands, right, okay. tens of thousands, I think, around the world. And you can tap into that, can you, to use the Bitcoin blockchain for what you're doing? Yeah, so actually anybody can have a node or a copy of the ledger. So we right. can download the ledger mm-hmm. and just start participating like that right? If you, okay. if you want. or you. And in fact, you can have the full copy. There's a light version um, or you can just interface with someone else's. And right. so certainly the aim is that you have lots and lots of these copies of the ledger distributed around the world. Right. And, um, and one of the big things that people are looking into now is, you know, that mathematical problem solving is very energy intensive, the mining mm-hmm. process. Mm-hmm. So in the Bitcoin blockchain, you know, they're, they're spending a huge amount of electricity money mm-hmm. uh, indirectly working out the, the solution right, um, yeah. on, with computational power. And so that's not good for the environment. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's actually the total power being used in the blockchain space is equivalent to a small country. It, well. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, so there are people working on other ways of making that process secure. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, that's what you get. Uh, you spend all that money and use all that energy, and the end result is a level of security because it's hard mm-hmm. to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are other approaches where you're not doing it that way, but you still have security you can trust right okay Um, so so i think that's going to be the next change that we'll see as those things go mainstream different ways of how can you do it in a different way that doesn't use all this energy yeah yeah yeah. and making it quicker as well so that transactions can happen more quickly and still be trusted Mm -hmm. um so those are the those are the areas that are going to sure make this go more mainstream in terms of the security thing presumably if like it got to the point where one country held all the people that had a copy yeah. of a certain ledger, but there was one person in another country that's got that ledger that's still secure, effectively. Well, uh, yeah, so then you do get into some problems about um, uh, the, the actual issue there is, is which, how, much of, how many copies of the ledger sort of constitute the, the real one. So it's, you, you would normally right. expect it's kind of the 50-50 rule, you know, more than 50% believe it in, in one way or, or take, uh, okay. take this as the, um, the true version, then that goes. Right, okay. Um, but you're right, uh, you know, so China has a lot of miners and copies of the blockchain because energy is relatively inexpensive there mm-hmm. and, you know, that's, there's a high concentration. So you could end up in a situation where a lot of the blockchain records are in one country mm-hmm. uh, and that could be problematic if mm-hmm. the country clamps down on it mm-hmm. um, interestingly people are also running their own nodes on the cloud infrastructure like the amazon web services right. um, so actually you end up even though you might be in lots of different countries <laughs> it's all on the same yeah, cloud-based yeah. platform so yeah. that is also another weakness that you have to watch right okay so yeah so a lot to it. <laughs> yeah, there is. And the way we've taken it with our business is, you know, it's a really interesting space, but the whole idea is it shouldn't be tech push um, looking for a market. We've identified something that we think people need in mm-hmm. terms of managing certificates. And then we can see that there's a, a good application for blockchain in that, which we're right. rolling out. So it, our, our system works without the blockchain, okay. um, but we think over time, blockchain will become more and more integral to it right okay okay yeah, that's the plan cool <laughs> exciting <laughs> yes yeah yeah now um just briefly before we uh before we wrap up because we've uh, actually just smashed through the hour our okay. boundary yeah, not that there's a boundary but i kind of have that in my mind as a yeah. um more locally well obviously you are running that locally but one of the local things that you do is the festival of innovation yes and that's coming back this year it is yep so each year now and this will be the 10th year 
Um, We've been organizing the Malvern Festival of Innovation. Mm. And of course, last year with the pandemic, it was a virtual event. Um, But normally it's in person Mm. and across a number of different venues. So we're planning that now. Um, It'll be in October. And all being well, we'll be able to get people back into auditoria and and uh listen to live speakers so yeah yeah looking forward to doing that um already got some tentative speakers uh that i'm in discussions with that should make the program really interesting cool excellent Um, and as usual we will be kind of catering for different types of audiences so the plan is um a school's day again Mm -hmm. we'll do a family day we'll do some business themed symposia hopefully Mm -hmm. we'll have a formal dinner um and we'll also hopefully do the science comedy night as well, which okay. we did for the first time just, you know, the year before the pandemic and seemed to go cool. down well. So <laughs> yeah. we'll try that again. Oh, excellent. Okay, yeah. cool. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I said in the, in the intro that you seem like quite calm and cool and collected with all yeah. the stuff going on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's the secret? <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, uh, I... Yeah, there's a, well, so maybe, um, maybe that's a facade. Certainly <laughs> most of the time my brain is whirring around, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, constantly working out things. So yeah. And yeah, it is, it is for sure stressful running companies and, and having the responsibility of employing people and delivering product and, you know, mm. not running out of money and all of that. So I guess over time I've learned to try and put it in perspective mm-hmm. but uh yeah i'm i can be quite stressed Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to know yeah. <laughs> well um people can find you at adrianburden.net yeah i apologize i should have given that out right at the very start but we'll put it in the show That's notes fine. and everything yep. um you're on the linkedin i am at adrian burden and you're on the twitter you do a I lot am. of twittering yeah, yeah we've yeah a fair amount uh, of uh, AP Burden and YouTube channel. You could meet Adrian Burden one. Yes. Yeah. So I do a bit of, uh, with the um, Royal Society Entrepreneur in Residence stuff at Birmingham, we've done mm. some workshops on entrepreneurship and building uh, cool. out different parts of the business, kind of based on some of the chapters in the book, Start to Exit. So uh, okay, um, there are some videos about all of that on the channel. Uh, okay. So people can go and have a look at that and uh, learn a bit. And Yep. Yeah. Everything from your experiences. Cool. Okay. That's been great. Thank you very much uh, you. again for coming over all the way over the hills. I know people <laughs> from Malvern find it difficult to get yeah, to Ledbury yeah. sometimes. Well, I haven't travelled this far for some time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, thanks. It's been yeah. really, uh, really interesting. I've enjoyed it a lot. Thank you, Dan. No, it's great. I'll thanks. see you soon. Cheers. You've been listening to the Thriving Three Counties podcast with me, Dan Barker. You can find links to all the episodes and show notes over at danbarkerstudios.com forward slash podcast. If you've enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show and connect more people in the region. Thank you very much for your time listening. I hope you've enjoyed it and we'll see you next time.